It always feels a little strange to be talking about Christmas after the new year has come and gone. Jesus is born, the angels have ascended, the shepherds have gone back to their fields and their flocks, and the rest of us are back to our regular routines. The Christmas tree is on the curb, the lights are packed away, and the toys have been played with and largely forgotten as kids talk about what they want next year. But here we are, after the credits have rolled, after the crowds are gone, and we are joined by three wise men who arrive a little late after the excitement has died down. Their eyes will be opened and they will be forever changed. Because while they may be a little late, it's never too late to experience God's love. A reading from the Gospel according to Matthew. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him, and calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them that the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I may go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. May they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Fists in the air, raised above a sea of denim and leather, 17,000 of my best friends and I screamed like idiots. Now, I hadn't been to a rock concert in at least 15 years. 
Until last August, when a neighbor of mine thoughtfully got me a ticket to see one of the greatest heavy metal legends of all time. Now, the ticket only cost me about 50 bucks, which tells you something about how far the mighty have fallen. But uh, in their heyday in the 1980s, Iron Maiden was selling out stadiums all over the world. For now, the Hollywood Casino Amphitheater in Tinley Park would have to suffice. I first got into Iron Maiden when I was in Catholic middle school, probably seventh or eighth grade. The parish priests warned us about their satanic influence. And of course, when the priest tells you not to do something in middle school, well, kind of makes you want to do it even more. And it turned out anyway, the satanic stuff was nonsense. Most of their lyrics are very British and proper ballads about historical figures and famous, ba uh, famous battles. Their songs are more likely to be about Winston Churchill than the devil. In fact, that's how they open every one of their concerts, how they've done it for 30 years, with a recording of Winston Churchill uh, in his inspiring speech to the House of Commons on June the 4th, 1940. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And upon that proclamation, a trio of dueling guitars launch into a song about fighter pilots in the Second World War. The stage is suddenly alight with pyrotechnics and a full-scale model of a 1941 Spitfire plane hovers menacingly above the stage. These guys have always known how to put on a good show. And when I saw them in August, they were still in top form. It was truly a spectacle, nearly as exciting and nearly as crowded as our Christmas Eve services last week. <laughs> but like all good things, the show had to come to an end. After the final encore, the crowds hesitantly dispersed abandoning their rock and roll fantasia for whatever their regular lives entailed. It was a Thursday night after all. Most of us had to work in the morning. That said, even though it was nearly midnight, I was starving. All of the food carts and snack trucks had gone home or shuttered their windows. There were still stalls selling beer, of course, but you couldn't get a hot dog for all the money in the world. So my neighbor and I, and a friend of his who had gone with us, we ended up walking about a mile to the nearest Taco Bell, where I could grab a bite and call an Uber to bring us back to Wheaton. Well, the thing is, though, the, the Taco Bell was closed. The drive through window was open. You can always count on that. But we didn't have a car to drive through it. So friends, here is a, an unflattering portrait of your pastor and spiritual leader standing in a Taco Bell drive-thru at one o'clock in the morning, shouting at the intercom, demanding to be served, can you hear me? Do you know who I am? <laughs> but they couldn't hear me. The drive-thru wasn't built for foot traffic, and uh, I wasn't just about to walk up to the window. I mean, I've got a little too much self-respect for that. 
And that's how the night ended. The crowds dispersed. We each went our own way home. And for all of the excitement, I was left feeling a little empty, hungry for something more. Now, the three wise men, magi from the east, they traveled from faraway lands to behold a magnificent spectacle. While there were no pyrotechnics or special effects, there were more remarkable sights to behold. Choirs of angels and a blazing star overhead, if you take Matthew's gospel at face value. But if you look closely, the text implies that the Magi arrived sometime later after the crowds had gone. For one thing, this story is related after all of the other events in the gospel. It also says that the Magi arrived at a house where they found Jesus, not a manger, so presumably they might have been staying somewhere else by this time. But even though much of the excitement had died down and there was little to behold but the child himself, that was plenty. The very face of God, love made flesh, the savior of the world. Now, that was probably a lot more than they actually expected to find. Remember, these men are not Jewish. They had little notion or care for a Messiah prophesied to restore the throne of David. They didn't come to see the Son of God. On the contrary, I imagine this was something more like a diplomatic envoy, a political gesture from their respective countries of origin. As the text tells us, they came to pay homage to a newborn king of the Jews. That's why they visited Herod while en route. They wanted to pay their respects there too. They probably brought him gifts as well. Subsequent non-biblical sources have identified these three scholars as Balthazar of Arabia, Melchior of Persia, and Gaspar of India. And being from different places, each with distinctive religious cultures, it's fair to assume that these men all practice different faiths, none of them Christian or even Jewish. Balthazar of Arabia would have likely practiced some form of pre-Muslim polytheism, perhaps a worshiper of the so-called jinn spirits. That's jinn spirits, not jinn spirits. Melchior was likely an adherent of Zoroastrianism, and Gaspar of India would have probably been a Hindu. These men came to see a king, not a god, but a god is what they found. Whatever transpired there surely changed them, for you cannot look upon the face of God and remain the same. The text tells us that they each returned home by a different road, and that serves a narrative purpose, as yes, they're trying to avoid King Herod and his vile machinations, But it also carries a second meaning. They went home by a different road because they had had an epiphany and they were changed men. The spectacle at the manger was not the real show. It was the opening act, prelude to the rest of their lives. It's only when the crowds are gone that the real performance begins. Howard Washington Thurman, a philosopher and civil rights activist, once wrote a beautiful poem that he called The Work of Christmas. And it reads, when the song of the angels is stilled, when the star in the sky is gone, 
when the kings and princes are home, when the shepherds are back with their flocks, the work of Christmas begins. To find the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to release the prisoner, to rebuild the nations, to bring peace among the people, to make music in the heart. And the same could be said for our own Christmas festivities, the exchange of gifts, the decorating of trees, the Christmas Eve worship. When it's all over, when the crowds are gone, when the spectacle has passed, the real work begins. My wife's aunt turned 65 a few weeks ago, and her husband threw her a huge surprise party in the skybox at Comiskey Park. Oh, I'm sorry, guaranteed rate field. Now, I don't know who came up with that name, by the way, but if that is not an indication of the corporate takeover of American culture, I don't know what is. I, I read a book once uh, that took place in the near future where corporations could actually sponsor an entire year on the calendar. So, for instance, instead of 2020, this would be the year of the Depend Adult Undergarment. But I digress. Like I said, the party was held in the Skybox restaurant where people pay small fortunes to watch the White Sox play. But it was November, and the White Sox weren't playing. The field was empty, surrounded by 32,000 vacant seats. Whoa, my four-year-old son remarked when he saw it. That's like a hundred seats out there. <laughs> it was silent and still out on the field. In contrast with the festivities going on inside, it was a fabulous party, free drinks, delicious food, a visit from the White Scots' official mascot, Southpaw. Now, I felt a little bad for Southpaw uh, because he'd been hired to entertain the kids at the party, and it turned out the only kids who were there were my own two boys and you know my four-year-old thought Southpaw was scary and my eight-year-old thought he was annoying and embarrassing because he's too cool for that stuff and I couldn't help but notice that Southpaw kept on turning his gigantic furry head in the direction of the bar. <laughs> As for me my gaze kept returning to the window to the empty field outside. It was a bit of a sad sight really especially on a gray November day. You might say it looked like an empty church, albeit a little larger, after everyone has gone home. But an empty church isn't so desolate, I mean, unless it's Sunday morning, but any other time of the week. It's not so desolate because you know that the people who are ordinarily here are out there, living faithful lives, taking what they've been nourished with here and using it to feed others out there. You know the work of the gospel, it's not being done in here, it's being done out there. The show, if you want to call it that, is still going on. The White Sox, on the other hand, weren't playing someplace else. The game was over. And that's the difference really between something like a rock concert or a baseball game or a, or a fabulous party in what we do here in church on Sunday morning. 
For everything that happens here, the inspiring music, contemplative prayer, preaching of the word, it's not a performance. It's preparation. It's practice. It's prelude to the rest of our week when we put the gospel into practice by demonstrating compassion and forgiveness and a willingness to fight for the powerless. The real spectacle begins when the crowds are gone. Tell you, man, that rock concert was an amazing show, though. Maybe the best I'd ever seen. As the band moved through their set list, the stage became a, a battlefield in the Scottish Highlands or uh, the frozen heights of the Bavarian Alps during the First World War. And at one point, even a church with massive stained glass windows. Now, as it turns out, a member of this church was also in attendance. I'm going to call him out, DJ LaChapelle. I'm sure he'd be happy to talk to you about the show after the service because he kept on texting me for days afterward because he just couldn't get over what an incredible spectacle it was. But it was nonetheless a spectacle, and it was over. I had to tell him, it's over, man. I'm sorry. (laughs) And like I said before, once it was over, I was starving. Here in this place, here at this table, we are fed, we are nourished, and we are changed. We depart by a different road than the one we came by to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in the world. And that is when the real work begins. Amen.